welcome to my art forum. It's time for post-orthodoxy, a show about changing our minds. Yeah, baby. With your hosts, Dark and Ainsley Sevier. Maybe what they believe about reality isn't all of reality. What? I know, right? We are on a mission to have a better time with more people more often. The question is more how do you get there? Post-orthodoxy explores strongly held beliefs, how those belief systems divide or connect people, and what might be found beyond those reality bubbles. Keep calm. Don't lose your head. I've got a piece of chocolate here with me because I got anxiety about doing this. Welcome to this neighborhood, neighbor. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to the Post Orthodoxy Show. This is a show about changing our minds. I'm uh, Citizen DJ Dark Sevier. And I'm Ainsley Sevier. Welcome to the program. We're doing a, trying this out this week, we're doing a meta news program. Meta news? Yes. So you've coined that term, eh? I haven't heard anybody else using it. I haven't heard anybody else using it. We've been tossing it around this week because, like, we do share information that is on the news but mostly we share it so that we can talk about how people feel about that information and whether or not we're actually like mentally able to to process information in a productive way right i like meta meta news means beyond Mm -hmm. if you if you have a news topic or any kind of topic or any kind of strongly held belief that you would like us to digest on post-orthodoxy mm. live on air please um send us a message you can find us at post-orthodoxy on facebook or our names on facebook or twitter or instagram yep ainsley and dark sevier uh yeah we are we've been it's going on six months now we realized oh yeah of talking about black lives matter and COVID 19 mm. at every every week pretty much and a lot of research behind all those conversations and there are certain things we can't talk about on community radio, but we can talk about religion and politics on community radio. Yeah. So if you have like a community radio safe subject matter that you want to hear us chew on, mm. uh, send us a message. You can yeah. participate in this conversation in several ways. You could be listening on KBMF 102.5 FM in Butte, or you might be listening at butteamericaradio.org slash stream anywhere on the planet live, or you could join us at facebook.com slash Ainsley Helen or twitch.tv slash the Seviers, which is where we take comments and questions and input and articles that people are sharing from our listeners. That's what we really love. The last two weeks, our Facebook live stream has been so lonely in here. And that was really depressing. (laughs) It was really depressing without you guys. Um, So we're glad to be back successfully live streaming on Facebook. We've already had some, some people tune in a shout out to DJ Savage. Who's been interacting with us a Mm. lot on our, our post-Orthodox conversations about coronavirus online and black lives matter stuff. And then uh, Roy Sykes is spending time with his family and won't be able to tune in as much as he usually does. But we appreciate all of you guys. We appreciate those of you that we don't know are listening in. Uh, We do value listener feedback. One listener feedback somebody gave to us a while ago was, um, why don't you share more of your sources? Right. So we're doing that now. So we're doing that now on our post-Orthodoxy Facebook page. And another listener comment that we get a lot of the time, especially in our discourses on Facebook, is you guys are not experts. You're not a doctor. So shut up. And please, can we just listen to the experts? Listen to the 
Uh, what, are they, what was the phrase that was used? Not um, the peanut gallery of the internet. No, no, no. <laughs> the phrase that was used. Uh, oh, common sense. Can we just listen to some common sense? Yeah, some common sense. And so we thought we'd start off today's show by sharing some common sense with you guys from an expert. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it, because people are listening really no, closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a, a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often, there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask, and they keep touching their face. And can you get some schmutz sort of staying inside there? Of course, of course. But when you think masks, you should think of healthcare providers needing them and people who are ill. So um, local expert, U.S., he's not the Surgeon General, but... Fauci. Anthony Fauci. Anthony Fauci. And he said right now, granted, this was back in March. Right. But what he was saying was the policy... Long-standing policy pre-coronavirus, long-standing, long-standing medical policy globally. of the WHO, the <laughs> CDC, the NIH, the NIH, Surgeon General, is the only people who should be wearing masks are people who are exhibiting symptoms. Or so, in a healthcare professional situation where you might pick up something from a patient or transmit something to a patient. Right. right. Common sense things. But oh. the idea... So, the, common, I like that common sense. Common sense things. That was the... Used to be common sense. Right. That changed in March when they just told everybody to start wearing masks. Like in the course of a week. All the institutes. The virus hit the U.S. and they were saying, the CDC, the WHO... Anthony Fauci and the Surgeon General were all saying, don't wear masks. It doesn't matter if everybody wears a mask. And then a week later, they all just changed their minds and said, you know what? You're right. Everybody should just wear a mask. So was and, that? Yeah. I mean, I think the the, the sense-making mechanism uh, of humans mm. is that we were like, well, they. I guess <laughs> I have to assume that that means... All of those experts learned something suddenly in that week that they had never learned before about viruses and masks. It's an interesting... Because we don't like to think that suddenly all those experts were thinking, okay, lowest common denominator, it'd probably just be a good idea to tell everybody to wear a mask because they're just not going to do the research to actually, you know, protect themselves uh, from this virus in a variety of other ways. So we should just tell everybody to wear a mask, lowest common denominator. Uh, We don't like thinking that the experts in our lives are, we want there to be experts, but we also want want to feel like those experts respect us enough to tell us what's really going on. And so if suddenly the CDC, the NIH, the WHO, Fauci, and the Surgeon General all change their minds in the middle of a pandemic that we should suddenly all be wearing masks, you're right, we changed our minds. That, that definitely means that they all learned something new. Right. Not that they're all just pulling the wool over our eyes. I haven't. And it, it's hard. It's a hard topic because I don't know if they're just pulling the wool over our eyes or if it, there's some expedient means in this thing. Yeah, I think it's lowest common denominator um, education. It's easier to tell just everybody wear a mask right. than actually send out pamphlets and education to people on how your immune system actually works with viruses. Yeah, we talk a lot about masks and we don't talk a lot about 
uh, how viruses impact you in relation to your immune system. Which and it seems what are like, viruses doing on the planet? It seems like we should be talking about that. So uh, we, I played that Fauci thing because I think the story is, oh, there's not enough masks. So they told people not to wear masks. Right. And um, we know that that's not the case because way before the virus, this was the policy. Yeah. So uh, for a long time. Don't wear masks just... That was the implication that they lied to us mm-hmm. and said, "Don't wear masks," so that all the right people could have the mask. But that's well, not, that's that's, that's not what, what the hum- that's what the civilians have done in our sense making. We right. try to make sense of right. things, and so when all of the experts suddenly change their minds midstream, we have to make sense. Of we it. have to try to make sense of it because right. they're not telling us why they suddenly changed right. their mind and everybody should wear masks. And so some of the sense making that has come out of it is what you were saying, which mm. is that uh, they must have changed their minds because uh, at first they were thinking we need to save masks for healthcare professionals. Right, which would then would make what they said an overt lie. Right. Which they could have that's, just said, don't wear com- a mask yeah. because we should save them for healthcare professionals. But Fauci didn't say that. No. And the guy was even like, people are listening really carefully right now. You better be careful what you're saying. And Fauci yeah. was like, I am being careful. It doesn't make that much of a difference. So that, um, you know, sharing some information, I made a post yesterday and the note was, uh, no one is fighting a pandemic. We're just fighting each other while this virus does what it's going to do. Congratulations on making a medical issue, a political issue. And then a number of people have come in to make this, uh, to continue making it a political issue. A political issue. Yeah, I think it's basically just all boils down, all the responses boil down to, well, it wasn't a political issue before Trump totally didn't take care of Which the country. is a lack of irony, and I think that's something that we're suffering from more than the virus. Right. Uh, like, and I love, yeah. I love all I, on, of our on Facebook friends. On a very friends. real level. Yes. A lack of irony is extremely dangerous in a complex world, in my opinion. You must, we must be able to self-evaluate. We must be able to self-evaluate. When someone says, we need to look at science and stop making this a political issue where if you wear a mask, you're a sheeple, and if you don't wear a mask, you're a Trump-tard. We need to look at science and not make it a political issue. And everybody's like, well, it wouldn't be a political issue if the Trump-tards would just do the right thing. Right, so that's the the complex (laughs) problem. So we've made it a political issue. And so people don't know how to get beyond that issue. Right. So the mask, no mask thing was six months ago. We have data now. We know how SARS-CoV-2 behaves on the planet. There's a little uh, article in Israeli, Israel National News. Uh, the article is quoting a professor, Udi Kimron. And professor... He is a professor. I'll tell you more about his credentials after right. I say the thing. Uh, and uh, the headline is, History Will Judge the Hysteria. Mm. And he says, Smart behavior would be the opposite of what we do today. Populations not at risk should become infected and create chains of immunity which will protect the sick and the elderly. That's what this guy says. Now, you're like, well, who is this guy? Uh, he is a full professor at Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv University, clinical microbiology and mm. immunology, postdoc at Harvard University. Hmm. Um, so it sounds like he probably knows a lot. These He's are the definitely sources, been studying it longer than I have. Definitely longer than I have. And these are the sources that I rely upon for the show. I try to find somebody who has some sort of background. This is not yeah. just punditry. 
Right. This is and people who haven't who have hypotheses based on knowledge. And so, we can make a guess since he's just a, you know, a Harvard graduate college professor yeah, yeah. that he's probably if not making the big bucks off of what he's saying. If you're into that kind of thing. Right. Uh, because uh, somebody somebody um, on my little post that I made said, pretenders chirping from the peanut galleries of the internet. He doesn't want to listen to pretenders chirping from the peanut gallery of the internet. Whatever so you got to tell yourself, honey. The narrative that I was hearing from my friend mm-hmm. is the narrative that's on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. Right. And now I know they think it can't be on Fox if it's on CNN and MSNBC. Because they're different. Uh, but it is. Yeah. It's the same, it's the same trope. Um, There's so, a mainstream story about what's going on, and everybody invested in the mainstream hysteria is just perpetuating it. The... Pretenders chirping from the peanut galleries of the internet. I feel are, a little, feel a little, uh, little. It's a little insulting. It's a little insulting. Yeah. Like, uh, for, especially like, well, the, if it, you break it down, right. like the word pretenders. Yes. I'm not trying to pretend anything. Like I've been. Oh, I've been, you, do you think he's talking about us being pretenders chirping for the peanut galleries of the internet? I'm sure he's including us in oh. it. As vehicles for the other peanut galleries of the internet. That sounds rather impolite. That's not a very nice a thing to say to a friend. Passively insulting. It's, anyway, I would say it's pretty directly insulting. Oh, so the <laughs> it's pretty directly. You guys are fake and posers, and you're trying to hurt people by talking about coronavirus in a way that other people aren't talking about coronavirus. Right. So I like these kind of dialogues because you know, even though I'm laying out in very clear te- terms what I have learned, also saying I don't know all the stuff and where are your sources? Because if you know better than I do, please share the wealth. And we're reading those sources. Right. And I'm reading the sources that are passed on. Yeah. So if you have better sources for this thing, like he says, you know, you know, there's clear... Anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to get into the whole dialogue. I guess my point is that the narrative, the dogma, the orthodox view of what's going on with the virus, which has formed as an orthodoxy by repeated, uh, by repeated uh, messaging on through the major news outlets. There are tropes that get thrown out there. So just wear a mask, dummy, mm-hmm. is one of these tropes. Now, when or you meanie. ask people... Wear yeah, a mask, meanie. If you ask them what the, where the information is that shows that... Masks made Masks a difference. Masks made a difference or the lockdown made a difference. I'm pretty surprised. I, I'm still a little surprised that the information that I'm given is correlatory data more than causal data. You want to break that down for me? Correlation versus causation? Yeah. All right. Here's a super simple example of correlation versus causation. This is really, 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 really important. Like, even if you don't want to get into logical fallacies and other aspects of critical thinking, at least get to know correlation versus causation, especially when all of us are throwing around data like we know what it means. Right. Correlation is hot weather causes shark attacks. Mm -hmm. People took the information, the data, that the weather is hotter and there are more shark attacks. And because those two pieces of data happen at the same time, they think that they are connected. Mm. Now, correlations are not always wrong, dangerous, false, but we need to learn to recognize the difference between correlation and a direct causation because hot, hot weather does not actually cause shark attacks. Shark attacks do tend to occur more during hot weather. Because people get in the water more? Oh, did I ruin it? You ruined my you ruined my my educational flow. Oh, geez, sorry. Okay, so 
Anyway. Now you know how that guy felt in the library when you were six. Now I know. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, causation is it's hotter, more people go swimming. And because people, there are more people in the water than normal, there are more shark attacks. The odds are. That's the actual cause. Right. There are actually more shark attacks because there are more people in the water because it is hot. Now, we can look at correlations and corollary data and find clues and imprints and pathways and um, directions to look in to find causal data. But corollary data is not causal data. Hot weather does not cause shark attacks. Right. And for an example, based on the research that Dark and I have been doing over the last six months, corollary data is that social distancing and masks are reducing COVID cases. That's, the That's a correlation. Correlation, yeah. Cases were down for a little while. And also people were staying inside, not going grocery shopping, not going on trips and wearing masks for a little while. Those two pieces of data were happening at the same time. Right. However, there is a third piece of data in the middle. People were wearing masks and social distancing and staying away, you know, not going on trips, not going to the grocery store as much. And the increase in mask use protected people from pollutants in the air more than normal. And the decrease in travel created fewer pollutants in the air than normal mm. and there were fewer coronavirus cases so we we are missing when you're looking at corollary data you're always trying to find the actual causal data in between, in between. point a and point b yeah and i haven't heard the causal data i've heard a lot of cor correlatory data actually it's corollary and corollary data i like the word correlatory better uh, but it's corollary data yeah so one of the narratives that I've heard that seems to have some merit is that if you were watching, if you were stuck at home in quarantine and you were watching the internet a lot, you saw this video of a satellite image of China after they did lockdown. This is before we did lockdown. Mm -hmm. They locked down China and you watched this red cloud of pollution disappear. There are people who are theorizing. There seems to be good evidence for the theory that high particulate matter areas, places with lots of P, P2, what is it called? I can't remember anyway, there's a term for the particulate matter that's in the atmosphere that carries around all this industrial waste, things from your fuel tanks and so on and so forth. When the highest concentration, P, the highest concentration of PM2 particulate matter two. correlated with high death rates and high sickness rates. And that when people quarantined, also industry stopped. And mm -hmm. so they're saying that perhaps some of the death reduction was not about separating people from each other, but it was that we had altered our environment enough so that we were not so susceptible to the virus. But we don't, we don't look we, at all of those things. Right. We only, we think of ourselves as separate from our environment. We're yes. not, we like a lot of people go around the world thinking about whether they're drinking out of a plastic bottle or a metal bottle. A lot of people go around the world thinking about maybe I should use the microwave or maybe I should heat it up on the stove. These are conversations that have been brought into like the consensus awareness of our health and our environment. Yes. But I don't know hardly any people who go around thinking about how much pollution they're being exposed to in a, in a given day. Mm. I, I like that really, 
I, I don't know. I lived in California, so I do. Really? I, yeah, people are, there's all They're levels very of aware awareness. and they yes. talk about it. Yes, yeah. Yes. So I've always lived in like Midwest, small town, Appalachia. Like I was in Portland for maybe eight years and that was it. The rest of my life has all been, people aren't really talking about pollution or being aware about how much pollution um, are in their system. So for instance, corollary data is that cold weather causes flus. Mm-hmm. But the causal data in between cold weather and flus rising is that cold weather causes the trees to go to sleep for the winter and they stop filtering the pollutants out of the air as much as they normally do. And so whenever cold weather hits your hemisphere, pollution levels rise, which causes more inflammation in the body, which causes an uptick in cold and flu. There seems to be some evidence that people who are in high risk groups who are taking certain kinds of medications make themselves susceptible this virus, in combination with those medications, mm-hmm. make them susceptible to arsenic intake from the through environment pollutants. through the, the PM2. Right. So, Whereas viruses normally pass in and out of our bodies without right. us being aware of without it. Us being aware. The medications that people on diabetes, people who have diabetes, hypertension, um, and other sorts of these, these pre-existing conditions that we're noticing, people with these pre-existing conditions are getting sicker and dying more often right. from SARS-CoV-2. What the medications that those people are often taking cause the virus when it passes through their body to go into overdrive and collect more pollution from the environment, which means more arsenic in your system. And so that's when they realized that we should not be putting people on ventilators. That's a theory that we came across a few weeks ago. We have a link to it somewhere on our post-Orthodoxy Facebook page. Yeah. Down the down the scroll a little bit. Can you share that uh, interview that we shared of our local expert Anthony Fauci saying at the beginning of the pandemic that wearing masks doesn't really make much of a difference? Sure, sure. I now I know the story. Even somebody said that DJ Savage said that the story was that he just said that. Well, he went back later. He has now later said, "Oh well, I we only tried to keep people from wearing masks so that healthcare people so would have enough." That if you watch that video, it's a very convincing lie. Yeah, why didn't he just say that and, in that interview? And what he's saying is that he was being very convincing in his lie. That's right. what he's saying to you by saying we were just saying that. He should have then just said, "Hey, U.S. citizens, right? Don't wear masks so, because we need enough for healthcare workers." That's what makes this story problematic. Yeah. For me. So either they just said it and they lied to us or they changed their minds and are not telling us why they changed their minds. Mm-hmm. All the agencies changed their minds suddenly. And, and so when people are mad politically I, because the other side has some stance on a mask, it's not for no reason. And it's no. not about our freedoms or not our freedoms or our grandmothers. It's not about any of that. There, there's a lot it's of information out there, and you are only likely experiencing information that matches things that you already believe. You're that's listening the, to the memes. That's what the internet shows you. And spreading the memes like a virus. They're going through you, and you're spreading them like a virus. This trope that when you had the beginning of a pandemic that was concerning people, we didn't know if it was going to be like a serious pandemic. Right. This is not a serious pandemic, as serious as the Spanish flu or as serious as some of these other outbreaks. SARS or MERS. It's a minor pandemic. As as testing goes up and case numbers... 99.99% people are going to survive. It's not It's not as serious. No, the death rate is continuing to decline. Right. So when you have that being the case, people are concerned because that's the way it was sold to us. And then when you have the people who are in charge giving you contradictory information one week to the next... That leaves people to either just trust the contradictory information and just take it without questioning it, 
or to go down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and trying to negotiate your own sense-making out of all these pieces that are just laying around the internet. Some of them valid, some of them not valid. So DJ says that's sad, though. What's sad? If he said not to buy masks because of healthcare workers, most of America would have bought them anyway. And I think he's kind of making the same point that we're making, which is that our experts, at least in the U.S., right. are lowest common denominatoring it. They're bad parenting us. Okay, They're so, telling yes, us, just yes. follow the rules, right. because if they told us the actual truth or what they thought the truth was, we wouldn't listen. Okay, so I think that's a valid point and only further emboldens my perspective that we need to be doing our own research, even though Forbes magazine says we must not. Quote. Must not. Quote, do your own research. So I think it's important. You plebe, you pretender of the peanut gallery. Uh, I know that uh, I don't have a tie or a title or a strongly held conviction. You do have a strongly held conviction. Not necessarily on this issue. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like my, I don't have strongly held convictions that I know what's going on with the virus. Right. I have an inquisitive mind and I would like to pop orthodoxies as they form. Like, you know, some people like to watch pimple popping videos on YouTube. <laughs> That's what I like to do with orthodoxies. Once people start saying, no, this is just the way it is, I immediately want to go over and pop it. Because, oh, me too. That's why we get along, yeah. baby. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, I, uh, if you say don't just, you're not supposed to ask questions about that. Then I'm like, ha ha. We're now going to be asking Guess questions about Guess what we're going to be asking questions about. Hey, if you're a listener and you have something that someone has told you, don't ask questions about mm. that thing. Uh, send us a message so that we can also ask questions about that thing we're not supposed to ask questions about. That's not healthy for our brains, guys. We have a really juicy show today. Yeah. I'm really excited about the content that we, now we're sort of shooting from the hip. I'm but so glad content. that you feel that way because I spent like five hours this morning in Just a morass tech, of technological tech, yeah. problems. <laughs> well, I'd like to set up one of the things that we're going to be talking about on the show with a little background. So as when I was in my 20s in Los Angeles, I would call myself a paranoid lunatic. Oh. I was acutely paranoid. Some would say that I had psychotic. I had a psychotic break. That would be another way to define... A period of my life and in my early 20s. And scientifically speaking, right. you were paranoid at that I time. I definitely was paranoid. Yeah. Um, and so I went down a number of rabbit holes of conspiracies. And uh, living in Los Angeles, I was a uh, stand-up comic, a writer, actor, limo driver, script consultant. Did all <laughs> kinds of things. All them stuffs. And I really was interested in the story the stories of... coming out of the 90s. So Hollywood oh. is the is the light that everybody looks at for their stories, right? That was the story I had in Los Angeles in the 1990s. So people look to Los Angeles, the stories that are emitted from Los Angeles craft the narratives of culture mm, and mm. shape history. It shapes perception. It engineers consent. It makes people suddenly feel bad for being a racist, maybe. It does a lot of things. And so I was really interested in the narratives that were going around in Hollywood. When I started going down these conspiracy paths of... Like, you can look up MK Ultra. It's an actual program. It's not a conspiracy MK theory. Ultra is not a conspiracy a real thing. theory. They but put were, it in TV shows and right. made stories about it yeah. because we don't actually totally know what was happening, but it was really happening. It was a real thing. But if you talked about MK Ultra in the mm -hmm. 90s, you were considered a conspiracy theorist. I mean, like... As a nut, which was a bad thing to be considered a conspiracy theorist. We do, because people trusted their government more back then. Yes. So we do know that MK Ultra was experimenting on people with acid. So without going down that road... Right. 
going down, I started reading these stories of conspiracy. So um, I read Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus Trilogy, which was this brilliant fictional work, question mark, around all the conspiracies in the world being woven into one giant conspiracy. And it was, that's what really helped make me become a paranoid, uh, acute paranoid. You started seeing I started fantasy. seeing connections yeah. that I had not been looking for before. So when I started going down the road of exploring these alternate versions of reality, so you have the mainstream narrative, you have religious narrative, mm-hmm. you have like your state story narrative, you have American history narratives, you have all these little narratives that we yeah. take for I'm a this. granted. I'm right? a that. Um, when I started reading these other narratives, I found the stories to be really interesting and much more compelling than a lot of the stuff that was coming out commercially. Even if they were dealing with historical issues or if they're doing fantasy, what I was finding in conspiracy, I found to be brilliant storytelling, complex world building going on to connect uh, the Masons to presidents to the Illuminati to the Rosicrucians instead to of just just this thing just the, that thing the the constellation of Cirrus like all those things get woven into one story right so I found that fascinating and the last few weeks we've been talking about the World Economic Forum mm-hmm. and the fourth industrial revolution and the World Economic Forum's initiative called the Great Reset uh, which is a real thing. Which is a real thing. That's not a conspiracy theory. The World Economic right. Forum website has a 200-layer map to explain it to you. I'm going to share that map right now because it's so beautiful. videos uh, and text and media links on hundreds of topics related to this Great Reset. And like which the... Which has been going on for a long time. Yeah, that's been going on for a number of years. The Great Reset is a, sort of a rebranding of Agenda 21, which was supposed to be a sustainability initiative of how to live sustainably on the planet. And that meant uh, really having... The idea was it was a non-binding plan. So that we'd say, hey, this is a really good idea that it keep us from turning into a fiery hell mess. And then <laughs> you can take our recommendations, mm-hmm. right? Uh, people didn't take the recommendation so much. And as we hurtle closer to a flaming hell mess, um, they had drafted this great reset, which is dealing with health, education, monetary systems, nature of business, poverty issues. They drafted this long before COVID-19, mm-hmm. just in the same way that the Patriot Act was drafted before September 11th. So we didn't have a need for the Patriot Act because we were feeling pretty good. I did not know that. Yeah, but the Patriot Act was drafted before September 11th. Then when September 11th happened, they're like, ha-ha, we have this thing to keep everybody safe, and now we all take off our shoes at airports. Forever. This was something that was set up in advance, and then they're launching it with COVID-19. So the idea is, oh, everything's upset. We have the solution. Mm -hmm. Let's get rid of all money. That's what for COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, people are like, oh, we're out of change. We shouldn't be handling these dollar bills because they're dirty. So it's. Oh, no, money it's, is dirty. It's the leap towards digital currency right. and a one world currency, Star Trek style one world currency. So this is what the World Economic Forum is proposing. And it's something they've been planning for a long time. Now, 
that's not a conspiracy. Again, the plans are on their mm -hmm. website. You can go look so, at their story. Just to talk about what a conspiracy, like conspiracy, conspiracy theory. A lot of people do, uh, and our uh, Sam suggested that we should talk about aliens. He's like, he said we should totally talk about aliens because as soon as you start talking about aliens, people just think you're crazy. Well, they'll tune you out real quick. Yeah. A lot of people will just be like, well, obviously we should never listen to anything those people ever say ever again about anything. And that's unfortunate. And that's the sort of dogma that we're trying to kind of massage out of our minds right. as a culture. So talking about conspiracy theories uh. is another one of those things where people will just suddenly be like, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist, and now I'm not going to listen to anything you ever say again about anything. One, one thing I learned from Bernie Sanders is just say the same thing over and over and over, and eventually people will get it. Like so, five really simple yeah, things. Five, Medicare so, for all. Right. We, <laughs> so, we live in a failed state. Uh, we no longer have a democracy. It is a, a oligarchy with unlimited uh, political bribery. Um, America d is not the world. Yeah. Donald Trump did not start the virus yeah. with bad handling or of even it. ruin the virus. Right. right. Yeah. So, so like, let this, me tell yeah. you. Let me tell. I was just going to try to tell Do everybody. It. Like, a so conspiracies happen historically, especially in politics. Conspiracies are always happening. We we know of lots of conspiracies that are happening in religion as well. Yes. It came out recently in the news that uh, Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade was being paid off by the church. To say, to say whatever her, her, story her position was, was her position in, in court in, in the that case. in yes. court she was yeah. being paid off by even like so that's a conspiracy. It was For a conspiracy, yes. No, it it was a conspiracy, as in people were secretly deciding to do something that other people didn't know about. It actually happened. That's it was what a conspiracy are. that happened, yeah. not a theory. Yeah, yeah. So knowing what we know, which is that. Lots of times people are secretly deciding to do things without telling anybody what's really going on. Uh, it makes sense that smart people or curious people or people that want to know what's going on would theorize about conspiracies being in the world. And those people are conspiracy theorists. Now, some people have hijacked the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorists and some just people. thrown it over into the corner and turned it into a derogatory term that means those people are dumb. Well, actually, it was the CIA that did that. Right. The CIA weaponized the term conspiracy theory. Yeah. If you look up CIA weaponized conspiracy theory, you will find the CIA documents where they said anytime anybody make, starts yeah. talking about Kennedy assassination or uses the word conspiracy, Make we them need look to like discredit kooks. them. We yes. need to make those people look crazy. So the fact that conspiracy theory being weaponized by the CIA is a, is a conspiracy. That we know not happened. A theory. It's not a theory about a conspiracy. So meta. I love it. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff. That's why I like it. Because yeah. in order to keep people perceptually destabilized, you have to create these kinds of worlds where you have to become comfortable with paradox to continue walking in them. Because you have to face these paradoxical situations. And a lot of people are really like not comfortable. Like the term conspiracy theory mm -hmm. was weaponized by the CIA. Now that's enough to make everybody's head pop right there. Mm -hmm. Because it sounds like a conspiracy theory. But we know Instead it happened. Of an actual conspiracy. Because we have their documents. It is. Yeah. I love this stuff. So <laughs> we've been talking about the fourth Indus industrial revolution, the great reset. Mm -hmm, I wanted mm -hmm. to play a video that the World Economic Forum put out to sort of lay out some aspects of what the fourth industrial revolution looks like to humans. Mm -hmm. Now, they're not coming from a Republican perspective or a Democrat perspective. These are what they call global shareholders. 
talking about the new reality that is under construction and being implemented at this very moment. And the blueprints, like I said, are online. So Right. This is really happening. And this is this, their video about what's happening. This is their video pitching the, their version of the fourth industrial revolution. Um, I also afterwards want to read some writing by a woman who... Doesn't like it. Doesn't like it. So it's a pro and con mm -hmm. perspective. But even though this is not a conspiracy theory... Right, because it it's is really something that's happening. actually happening. It's not even a conspiracy because they're telling us it's yes. happening. Ex well, there may be conspiracies within this endeavor, but the endeavor that we're talking mm -hmm. about is all out on, on board. It's right. sort of like if you think of Alice in, not Alice in Wonderland, um, Wizard of Oz, right? They knew that they were going to see the wizard. And when they got there, they saw the wizard. And the wizard was a giant floating green head over a stage. And so, like, it wasn't like the wizard was pretending he didn't exist. They really saw the wizard. And then they found out that there was actually more to meets the eye, and the wizard was being produced by a tinier wizard right. behind the curtain. Right. Right? So that's the whole behind the curtain thing. Like, the World Economic Forum is telling us there's a wizard. Here this is he what's is. Happening, and this, this is, is what's happening. These are the people that are doing it. It's quite possible yeah. that there is more to the story that they're not telling us. Likely is is likely very likely so i find this story really fascinating because they're only talking about reshaping all of reality and the human endeavor mm -hmm. and we're talking about trump's misspellings and i find that interesting in terms of where we're spending our focus right now because in my opinion what the wf is is rolling out is going to make our system fairly moot it's so weird to me how much of the u.s just thinks the u.s is the center, center of, the of the planet world. right like like Trump's embarrassing to a lot of the world, uh, but in general, kind of a lot of the world, uh, we have various friends from all over the world commenting on our stuff. And they're like, uh, the chatter over here in Japan is that people are a little embarrassed by the U.S. right now. The chatter over here in Switzerland oh, yeah, is, yeah, the, yeah. is that like, um, we don't really know what's happened to the U.S. in the last four years uh, because everybody's acting super strange. My friend in Greece said, yeah, it was uncomfortable, but we seem to have handled the virus in a, you know, our authorities seem to handle it in a way that we feel good about. Yeah. We don't have that feeling over here. Um, and I think it's a part of our perceptual destabilization um, that it feels a little engineered because it's really good for news. And we've already covered that. I don't know how many times. News. Sells. Sells. Things. Fear. Fear makes you buy things. Yes. When if you're afraid. If they can make you afraid, you will buy the things you that are paying the salaries of the for people who are at yeah. the networks. That's Kevin Noel Olson says, many conspiracies have become proven to be true. Yes. Unfortunately, the difference between a theory and a hypothesis has become synonymous in the minds of many. They are related, but not identical. Exactly. So I feel like Kevin is saying, but still conspiracy theorists are dumb. Um, if we were a conspiracy hypothesis, how would you think about that? And if we guess? called ourselves conspiracy theory, well, conspiracy hypo hypothesizers, too many syllables. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to play this this video. Okay. And there's some. It's really slick produced video. Very pretty. Uh, you're not going to be able to see all their image. We can put a link to the video on, I'll put the link to in the video Facebook in our live Facebook stream. live stream. Mm -hmm. And that's something you can go back and watch later because yeah. these are p very rich and powerful people in various organizations oh, and groups on the planet. It's worth seeing Who this. are deciding that they're going to do this thing for Earth. Yeah, you're not voting for this plan. This is what they're rolling out. Yeah, and they're so doing it. And can, they made us a nice video so yeah, we can see what it's like. We can stop this video at any moment if mm -hmm. you want to and we can talk about the points being brought up. But I invite you to listen 
listen to this and listen to the the wonderful soundscape they mm-hmm. created too, which really kind of has a different feeling when the visuals aren't there. Well, I think it's important before we step into this video analysis, which okay. is what we do in our meta news show, is yeah. we analyze things that other people just get freaked out about, right? right? And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way because I used to be a person that would just immediately have an opinion about things. Right. But if you take a moment and not have to immediately have an opinion about things, then we can do analysis. Yes. And so before we go into the World Economic Forum's pitch video mm. for the Great Reset, I think it's important to point out, you know, maybe a little reductively, that there are going to be two basic reactions to the world of tomorrow. You think so? I think there is basically the reaction of like, cool, that's exciting. I love technology and I hope that someday my quadriplegic friend will be able to walk again. Okay. And then the other basic reaction is like, scary robots are taking our jobs at the grocery store and I don't like the idea that someone will know everything about me. Right. And so you can kind of listen to these things that are being proposed by these people who we did not elect, who are right. just going to do it and, yeah. and pay attention to how you feel and, and how you feel about what they're saying. Yeah. These are big players in the fourth industrial revolution. We'll stop if you have a moment. Otherwise we'll get through it. We'll, we'll watch this video. We'll take a break at the top of the hour and then we'll come back and discuss it. And, um, a, a very well written out response to yeah. this. All right. So let's, uh, this is WF. What is the fourth industrial revolution? We are wondering what is happening to the world. Everything is changing. The very idea of human being some sort of natural concept is really going to change. Our bodies will be so high-tech, we won't be able to really distinguish between what's natural and what's artificial. Inside our own heads is the most complex arrangement of matter in the known universe. You might ask yourself, can we get to be superhumans? revolution was driven by the discovery that you could use steam engines to do all kinds of interesting things. But that was followed by additional revolutions for electricity and computers and communications technology. We're now in the early stages of the fourth industrial revolution, which is bringing together digital, physical, and biological systems. One of the features of this fourth industrial revolution is that it doesn't change what we are doing but it changes us. With the ability to visualize brain activity, for example, through a simple consumer-based EEG device, it gives us access to ourselves in ways that we've never before thought possible. It unlocks the black box that is the brain and enables us to um, really, truly be able to uh, realize an identity that is aspirational. There's now a scientific foundation for the effects of mindfulness on the brain, on the genome, on biological aging. And when the human mind does know itself, then you get the potential for a new renaissance that restructures itself in terms of our relationship to life, our relationship to the planet, our relationship to work. We need a different economic model. By that, I don't mean capitalism versus communism. 
What I'm talking about is a shift in the system along the lines of the two big changes that happened in the 20th century, Keynesianism, with a much greater focus on health and education and the role of government working with business, and then a reaction against that in late century to neoliberalism, where the focus was on free markets, freedom of the individual, and getting governments out of the way. We need a shift to a new system that will allow us to meet the basic needs of every human on the planet, that will live within planetary means, that will be fairer, and that will be focused as its key goal, not on growth per se, but on maximizing human well-being. And history tells us that a value shift is triggered by creation of a new story about how we want to live. I see the circular economy as something which fits very closely with mankind's goal to be innovative and creative and to always progress. We can use asset tracking, we can use IT, we can use 3D printing to enable this different economic model to recover materials, feed them back into the economy and really to decouple growth from the resource constraints we have. The reason we live in cities is not different today than it was 10,000 years ago. Even if we have got networks connecting us, we still want to have places where we meet in person. Well, this means the place where we work and the place where we live are much closer to each other, a city where we don't need to have big supply chains in order to produce things, where many things can be sourced locally thanks to 3D printing and robotics. So if we're able to do something to transform cities, to make them more efficient, then the impact can be huge. Think about the prospect of getting rid of plastics. We must not only be inspired or informed by nature, but actually use natural organisms with which to design products and building parts. Only instead of varying material properties, we're varying biological functionality. Design is critical today because it's the first signal of human intention. So the question of adding quality to quantity, it isn't a matter of simply circulating things that are potentially toxic. It's circulating things that are safe and healthy for all generations. So the goal is no longer, I want to be less bad, less monotonous, less unsafe, less unjust. It's really about a diverse, safe, healthy, and just world with clean air, clean water, clean soil, clean energy. Together we are fighting to preserve our fragile climate from irreversible damage and devastation of unthinkable proportions. If we think about the original Industrial Revolution, it was an energy revolution. I like to think of it as a kind of bookending of a period in human history during which we used fossil fuels and it worked very well for us for a long time, but now we have to bring that to an end. We have energy technologies that can power our civilization, solar, wind, uh, biomass. So then the question is, well, how do we get grid integration? Maybe the wind is blowing in Denmark. The sun is shining in Germany, and now you can move that electricity through an integrated grid. You can supply energy to everyone who needs it, and you can supply energy at all times. different stuff as um, far as like the body marriage line they use a lot of things that help them lift up and move things to the car you just sit there and you know program something and if it has its own set mind to go ahead and do everything and then as humans we just come in and take the extra steps to help the technology it's not the the cure-all for everything there's definitely a lot of things where people perform the operation better but certainly for the right applications robotics are a huge improvement for the process 
The prediction of 5 million jobs lost by 2020 to technology is serious, but it's not the main question. Construction, manufacturing, services, public health and education, these industries will still exist. The main question is, what will be the future of work? How will we define work? How will we share the wealth? But from the viewpoint of the, the labour or jobs, now the, uh, we really need a new education or new training. We're working with a world in motion in FIRST Robotics, trying to encourage you know, students from third grade all the way up through uh, the end of high school. We um, had students make sailboats, and then we had them race them, and so they could see how quickly they could move. And they immediately went back and started to say, oh, I saw what happened, I'm going to go change this or that. And that was third graders. I just given a prize to a kid of 18 years old that has discovered something really very, very unique. Came up with how to get better productivity and better yields for seeds of corn. And so he basically came with the idea that if you would perforate these seeds, you would get more food. And uh, you think about it and say, but he didn't go to university. So how does he get all that knowledge? And he told me, I mean, I've been watching YouTube since the age of 12, and I'm so interested that I've seen everything about it. I've read everything about it. The world is really open uh, to learning. The thing is, uh, how do you give the incentive to your kids to do that? It's this ability of digital technology to change outcomes, to truly empower people all over the world that can create a more equitable growth, because I think the world needs that. Fourth Industrial Revolution has the potential to make inequalities visible and to make them less acceptable in the future and hopefully to gather and garner political support to take the necessary decision to reduce the gap. Humans have always been using tools, but because of the recent advances in technology, we're beginning to have machines that can augment us in all sorts of interesting ways. I was the first person in the world to be able to voluntarily move my legs while stepping in a robot by exciting the nervous system using electrical stimulators directly onto the spine. We believe that a cure will be possible if enough of the right people have the will to fast track a cure for paralysis. We take two things from the patients. Um, first, we take a three-dimensional x-ray, and we extract the three-dimensional data out of that so we can make a perfectly shaped puzzle piece. And then we also take a sample of fat tissue from the patient so that we can extract the stem cells out of those. And we use those stem cells with this three-dimensional scaffold that we fabricate, and after three weeks, we have a piece of living bone that's uh, ready for implantation. Being able to use genome editing to understand the genetic changes that lead to cancer and technologies like uh, drug delivery, getting molecules into particular types of cells. There's a lot of excitement about being able to move much more quickly on this disease. One of the things that I think is so essential to free and open societies is freedom of thought. Um, and up until now, the conversation we've been having is around freedom of speech. Once we can access people's thoughts and access people's emotions, um, we have to create a space that enables people to think freely, to think divergent thoughts, to think creative thoughts. And in a society where people fear having those thoughts, uh, the likelihood of being able to enjoy progress is significantly diminished.
we need to take responsibility at every level of society, from the individual and the personal to the institutional to the global, to adapt to these technological challenges and changes, which are redefining what it means to be human, what it means to work, what it means to be completely embedded in this world. People always ask me if I'm an optimist or a pessimist. The technology exists, but how do we get it and implement it at the scale we need at a price that people around the world can afford? Even though we have everyday problems, we have to solve, we have to find a way to lay the foundations for the innovations of tomorrow. So that's the sales pitch for the Fourth Industrial Revolution by the World Economic Forum. How's that sound? They they talk about a lot of stuff. Yeah. They're kind of talking about all of it. They're talking about... Redefining everything. Uh, like, I liked one of the things that they said in the middle, and I guess I'll probably just go back and forth between things that I liked and things that I didn't like. Mm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I really liked when she said, we need to have cognitive liberty and freedom to think diverse of thoughts. Yes. And also then she said, and so when we know what people are thinking. When we can access When we can their access thoughts. people's thoughts. I'm like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> But we already know it's coming. Like, yeah. I know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's protestations aside, we already know that Facebook shows you ads for things you were talking about. That you yes. did not ever type anywhere. Um, and so they're listening to our voices. I, I can imagine that... Um, well, I, I don't know, but th- that's something that I can't say I know. It seems evident. I mean, I've seen evidence that my phone shows me ads for things that I... correlatory I've... data or... <sighs> You're right. <laughs> I'm looking for... The other data. You're right. And I have an You're article. Right. I just wasn't able to get through it on the show. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I, I really liked in the middle where they were saying, we don't just want to li- be um, less afraid, less tired, less ill, less polluted. We want to be healthier, more joyful, more self-expressed. We need to change the bar. Yeah. They're like, yeah. let's, what if we, <laughs> what if we actually got done just trying to get rid of the bad stuff and actually got to start working on progress in positive ways that sounds like something to do not just less pollution right this i think part of the block the reason that we're not talking about this in the united states is because this is really scary to people who are still laboring under uh stone age religious dogmas the heck do you mean by that stone age religious dogmas well it uh, let me just say from the outside, it sounds derogatory. So can you unpack that sentence a little bit? Doesn't the, a lot of the Bible come from the Stone Age? The Stone Age doesn't exist in the Bible. <laughs> I don't even know how those, I don't even know how those ages are ordered. Okay. As a person. Touche. That, as a, <laughs> yeah. So that's why we're not talking about the Great Reset in the Fourth Industrial Revolution in the United States. Why? It does not meet the Judeo-Christian paradigm. We're just waiting for the boat to burn so we can hop off and go to heavenland. That's the paradigm, right? We're They're not, saying we're not having a good time on earth. We're not having a good time on earth, and, and we, we can't wait for this to be to done. Have a good time exactly, on earth. exactly. These folks are saying, "Hey, maybe we could be having a better time." I mean, I have to insert here, like hashtag. Not all Christians are just sitting on their butts waiting for the apocalypse. That is a stereotype. 
that I perpetrated. You, I stand corrected. A lot of Christians, Christians are actually heavily invested in their environment and their communities. It's true. But you're right. There is a core old-fashioned Christian idea that... Um, I'm talking about stereotype for convenience that I do not think is um, uh, hard to see what I'm saying. Well, you're saying... Some, you're saying your blanket sentences is that you think we aren't banding together as civilians of the planet to improve experiences on the earth because Christians just want to leave and go to heaven. We already got one foot out the door. Yeah, that's your blanket statement. That that's your is, theory. That's really why you think that we are not working with technology. Perspective. Yeah, I think it's a big part of it. You think most of the reason that we're not working with technology better as civilians of the planet I'm, is because I'm not of talking Christianity. About, I'm talking about people in, in the United States. Okay. And that's who I'm talking about. You think the, the reason We're not why the only religious organization or, or nation in the world. We have a heavily, we mm-hmm. have a 70% of the citizens of this country uh, claim to be Christian. Right. So it's a heavy religious yeah. um, zeitgeist mm-hmm. that is woven into the fabric of our society and culture. Mm-hmm. Whether and you're a Christian or not. Whether you're a Christian or not, that zeitgeist informs the way we do things. It informs our medicine. That's why we're looking at basically the way we look at viruses is the way that Christians look at demons. Ancient Christians looked at demons as these things are going to come get you. Right. right? That's a Judeo-Christian model that has folded into our scientific model. Right. In my opinion, in my, from the way I see it. Right. It's, so, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of wonderful things that we're doing that still have, you know, the tobacco flavor from when chain smokers live there. You know, it's just like that <laughs> That Christian thing is, I feel, controlling or retarding some of the narrative that we could be having mm. because it doesn't fit the we're just waiting to get out and go to a better place narrative. Right. There's other people who are saying... I would say if it were, we if it were a Venn business. diagram yeah. of reasons why... U.S. civilians are resistant to technology. Mm. I would say I agree with you. A large part of the reason why U.S. civilians are resistant to or afraid of technological advances is because of this portion of Christian beliefs where we're not supposed to enjoy being on earth. We're supposed to get through being on earth so we can go to heaven. Suffer all the temptation of the nasty natural world. I agree with you. It's a portion. Yeah. I'm still openly curious of like what other reasons might be. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with age. We've talked about um, different age demographics before and how, like, if you spent the first 30 years of your life without access to the internet, like, I mean, I'm already encountering new technologies that I have to talk myself into learning at 32. I'm like, well, but why can't I just keep using all the skills that I learned for the first 30 years of my life? Why do I have to keep learning new stuff? I have that feeling There's already. Resistance. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we're dealing with a demographic problem that won't be here in 50 years. Right. Because in 50 years, everyone alive will have grown up with connectivity and access to the internet. Uh, provided, by and large. Provided, provided uh, the, the, we stay the course. Right. Um, so I wanted to share the sales pitch of the fourth industrial revolution from the World Economic Forum. And because I'm a big fan of apocalyptic and uh, conspiracy theory articulation in writing, because you often do have to hold opposing ideas. You have to um, 
make language where there is no language mm-hmm. sometimes in order to talk about these difficult subjects. I'd like to get uh, maybe we can take a break, go to the top of the hour, and then return. And I would like to introduce to our audience uh, a character named Allison Hover McDowell. A public intellectual. Public intellectual, uh, education ag- a- advocate. Mm-hmm. She has a, a website. Do you have a song to play for us for the top of the hour? Wrench in the Gears. Ah, Wrench. And I'm going to read from, it's a skeptical parent's thoughts on digital curriculum. Because so, she's coming from the education world. To, to be very clear, yeah. this person is not a Nobel laureate. No. She is not a Stanford professor. I don't know what her actual edge. I haven't looked that all, all that up yet. But a lot of the people that we do look to are. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll go by she's a public intellectual. She's yeah. definitely like, again, whether you agree with what she's saying or don't agree with what she's saying. She's doing a lot of work. I love her writing. Her style. And her articulation of her perspective. So to break it down in sort of like a, a Gen Z She's world building. Mm-hmm. She's taken the information that the World Economic Forum has provided, and now she is world building what the future looks like through her lens. Right. This is what she thinks the future might look like. And it, it, it could spawn a Netflix series, right. uh, a book series. Totally. She's got all the lingo, the language. She's put together a world, mm-hmm. her vision of the World Economic Forum's world, which is different Mm -hmm. than what the sales pitch was. So I'm not endorsing her thing. I just want to throw it out there. We have to take a break real quick and tell you that you're listening to KBMF LP Butte, 102.5 FM. Thank you so much for tuning in this afternoon. Uh, You could potentially listen to us anywhere on the planet at butteamericaradio.org slash stream. Or if you're feeling all up in your feels about the stuff we're talking about today, please join us at facebook.com slash Ainsley Helen, and you will uh, be able to share your comments and thoughts with us about the subject matter. Yeah, let's just take a a little moment. We don't have to take a moment. Oh, we don't have to. No, we don't. I'm so so ready to go. So I'm as I'm listening to you talk about the World Economic Forum, and I'm thinking about people's reactions to the world of tomorrow being built for us, whether we want it or not. Yeah. And then I think about Allison's reactions and the work that she's put into crafting what she thinks might be going on and what we have to watch out for. I just I'm constantly sorting and making sense (laughs) of the things, and I I feel like I can just dissolve it down to love or fear. That's important. And some binaries are useful because she's using really, really great language and really obviously she has a vast grasp of fantasy and science fiction literature. And she's using those tropes and those image imageries to explain to us how she thinks it's going to happen in the future. Right. Now, I could go watch a bunch of science fiction movies, TV shows, and read a bunch of science fiction books and a bunch of fantasy books and movies and TV shows and find a bunch of movies, TV shows, and books in the fantasy and science fiction realm that show that the world of tomorrow is going to be better than this one. Okay. That show that the the advances that we're making and the work that we're doing is going to pay off. I could find stories and, um, and worlds that have been built by people as early as the thirties when, when sci-fi was first beginning to be a thing, um, that talk about how it's possible that in the future technology will be making our lives better. 
And I could also go and watch, read, and listen to a bunch of books, movies, TV shows in sci-fi and fantasy fiction from the last 150 years that talk about how our technology is going to kill us and take oh, us over all and doomed. ruin the future. Right. And you can sort any any like uh, any urban fantasy or dystopian literature or utopian literature into one of those two categories fear or love does this right. book think that the future is going to be a better place or does this book think that the future is going to be a worse place right. and i feel like you could react to what the world economic forum is doing in real life by thinking hmm they're probably going to make the future worse Taking than my job. now going to take my job or you could think maybe they will make my future better than it is now now the capacity is there we could look at that information yeah because we don't actually know well we we in order to get a better world we have to conceive of a better world and so as much as i like this lady's writing i feel like there's um and i don't want to be perceived as some some naive uh person that doesn't think that power will easily give up the reins to running the planet I think it is worth, though, trying to imagine what a better planet might look like mm. if somebody else was holding the reins. So that video that we saw from the fourth industrial about the fourth industrial revolution, they're mm -hmm. painting this very pretty picture about what could be. Now, I like a lot of the things they were painting. The question is, like, we could know ourselves better if we had access to the data that is being mined from us by our internet mm -hmm. activity and all our movements. If we had access to our own data, we could know ourselves better. Mm -hmm. We would know our mood swings and our right. health problems. Right. We could know ourselves better with the benefit of artificial intelligence. We don't have access to that information. Somebody else has access yeah. to all of the amalgamation of all of our data across all the apps that we use. And they have a picture of the kinds of people that we are and the things that we want. So it seems to me, let me just read some of her stuff. I want to read some of her stuff. And then I think we can do some breakdown of my feelings about what she's saying. Okay. But I want to read some of her stuff. And again, this is to qualify what's going on here. I'm reading this perspective from somebody who has a response to the video that we just played. This is from Allison uh, Hover McDowell's webpage called Wrench in the Gears. And this is from the month of August 2020. This is a little piece. I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs. Okay. Uh, Tempsilla Medicine for the Technologic. And Technologic is tech, space, no space, logic. And this is the way it goes. This is her opening piece. This is from August 7th. John Trudell, Native American activist and poet, spoke prophetically of a predator energy that mines the, quote, being part of humans, unquote. He called it tech-no-logic. Every January since the early 1970s, the World Economic Forum's power brokers have assembled in Davos to plot out the next steps of their planned tech-no-logic coup. We've now reached a tipping point with the introduction of, quote, stakeholder capitalism, unquote. It's a vast program of poverty mining, meant to transform the masses into human capital data commodities for financial speculation and ubiquitous surveillance. This emerging investment sector runs on poverty and trauma, two things the response to COVID-19 has manufactured in abundance. 
Next paragraph. We are experiencing the lead-up to the World Economic Forum's planned transhumanist future. COVID has paved the way for a reset meant to usher in their fourth industrial revolution. This is a revolution in which artificial intelligence, Internet of Things sensors, 5G robotics, and synthetic biology threaten to consume humanity. So already I'm getting a taste that she, she thinks, like it. Um, for instance, I'd hear think about the idea of my quadriplegic friend being given a neurologically interconnected exoskeleton. And I think of that as being a good thing. Uh-huh. And she, although I'm sure she cares about my quadriplegic friend, thinks that the good will be not enough of a trade-off for all of the bad that will happen because of all the other weird... She thinks of it as invasive. Yes. She thinks of us becoming more connected with the tools at our disposal in our digital environments as right. a bad thing. That's the, it tone. Seems to be the, That's case. the tone I'm getting from Yeah, her. I'll just read another little bit of this paragraph. Um, we're on the brink of normalizing biocapitalism. Oh. humans and nature as batteries for financial markets. Well, I think that's already happening. Yeah, it's already happening. Uh, picture derivatives mixed with bioengineered eugenics, deceptively sold to the public under the brand of green capitalism. This plan is to, uh, the plan is to channel the concentrated wealth of the world's largest asset holders through structured deals aligned to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Pull back the curtain and see a program unthinkingly embraced by so many progressives and liberals. I take offense to that. Exposed for what it is. Not, mm. not climate justice and not liberation of the poor and dispossessed, but instead an orgy of mechanistic spirit eating. Jeez. Come on, man. That's the way to just tie up that paragraph. That is some writing. Drop it in. Orgy of mechanistic spirit eating. Yeah. So I'm also sensing from Allison that she feels the only things that can be spirit are organic things. She Mm. feels a struggle. Mechanistic spirit eating. The machines are coming for our souls. It seems to be, well, and again, it goes back to your thing, is uh, what perspective are you looking at these possibilities through? Now, I come from a place where I have been rather suspect of um, our systems of power on the planet. Uh, the corporate state, yeah. for example, oligarchies I think we so can on. do both. I think we can yeah. be suspect of the systems of power and also choose to try to see how things could be better. In my perspective, I feel like I get frustrated with all this uh, blue, red, Democrat, Republican um, tribalism because I feel like the discussions we should be having is I don't think we're going to stop technology. I don't think we're going to say, you know what? Too much technology. We should dial this back and use plows. Let's just dial it back. <laughs> yeah, let's just dial this back let's a just, bit. You know, I that don't, was a mistake. <laughs> let's go. I don't see that happening uh, unless there's some sort of like meteor disaster. Apocalyptic breakdown. So I don't think, I don't, I haven't seen a plan for how to slow the rise of the technocratic state. 
I guess the way I see it in my mind is like the train has left the station. Yes. It left the station in the 1700s or 1300s right. or how, whenever you think technology started. Right. Maybe you only think technology started when we developed the first thing that was like a computer. Um, but the train for technology has left the station in this iteration of Homo sapiens on this planet. Mm. And uh, I want to be on the train. I, kinda, well, I don't want to spend my 80 years fighting the train because I don't like what the train might do to me. There's a, I get a little ghost in my head when I think about this particular juncture, which is there's <laughs> a, a line, ghost. a little ghost comes in, <laughs> creeps into my head and whispers something in my ear. Okay. And the ghost is this, it's this thought, you know, you've seen all the movies yeah. where somebody says, if you can't beat them, join them. Are they a traitor or are they, did they find a way to not die? Right. Right. So if you can't beat them, join them. And I guess part that's kind of me, what I'm thinking. Yeah, is like, I don't, I haven't heard a good solid plan for how we're going to slow the transhumanist agenda. No. Um, we're not going to stop these wealthy, powerful people from enacting the Great Reset on the planet. No, it's no already ama- happening. No amount it's of happening. shaking our fists at the sky is going to stop the World Economic Forum. Right. So why can't we all just give up on that waste of time and energy and find a different way of dealing with what's happening? And so when we're arguing over mask, no mask on a case where you could know uh, information about that case, you could go and do some research and find some people who are not from the peanut gallery of the corners of the internet, but actually <laughs> people who make this a part of their mission on microbiologists to figure this stuff out. There's information out there where you can make better informed decisions instead of dumbing down the information. We keep dumbing down the political information. We dumb down our medical information, make it political. We're not going to suddenly go, Hey, let's get smart again. No, no, we keep making it dumber. When and are so we going to stop like we taking be our having, shoes off at the airport? We should be having a dialogue around who has access to our information? What are the ethics around sharing our data? How does that get used in ways where, like, you know, we could share the resources of our own generation mm-hmm. versus of our own planet? You know, is that a dialogue we can have or do we just continue to fear Big Daddy? Right. Do we just assume that the powerful will always be vicious? Continue to use energy and to we will resist always be slaves something of the we have powerful, no control over. Right. Or do we say maybe we should have a discussion? Do can we do a cutoff at a billion? Yeah. Can we just say, like, okay, you got a billion person. dollars. I think you're going to be fine. I think once you start getting into two, three, four, five billion dollars, yeah. it's the equivalent of um, feedback from a guitar amp on an audience. You can play that a little bit, and it might be kind of cool if you're a master. Otherwise, it's just painful for everybody else. Yeah. There's a feedback need- loop that happens when you make so much money, you can't not make money. Right. That's a feedback loop that I feel like is um, toxic. You could. In yeah. my perspective. Gosh. It so just like after you sense. have a billion dollars, tell me what you want to do with two billion. I might be interested in the idea. But and I, I don't just mean have. Have it. No, no. What are you going to do with that power, with that, with that resource, with that currency? Yeah. So just, I, we could be having these discussions now. And I think these are the not necessarily of like... Um, first woman president, which is a milestone that we should get to. And I'm glad that I'd be glad one day when we have a woman president that is a good leader. Right. It would be nice. That actually cares about the people that she's serving. I love that idea. Right. But not just a woman. Yeah. There are many women that I know that I would not want to be president. Really disturbing. I just, I don't want just a woman. I like, I want a good woman. We should be talking about (laughs) bigger ideas. And just, we're not doing just the it US presidency. because the ideas that we're talking about 
are tropes that are brought out to excite a base. And when I say base, I mean base. Um, it's not there to motivate the average American to get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. It's there to excite a very active tribal mindset. That's why we have so few people voting because the people who actually want to have a better life, want to envision a better world, want to think about how to get corruption out of politics have been, um, don't want to get in the sandbox of public discourse because the fat cats have pooped in it so much. Mm -hmm. You don't want to build a sandcastles where the fat cats are pooping. Yeah. And that's what's happened to our politics. The fat cats have pooped all through the sandbox. The sandbox of what's who supposed to be representative government. Yeah, who wants to climb in there and try to shape a future when, especially cat, fat cat poop. Mm-hmm. I mean, geez. Anyway. <laughs> Do you have fun with that metaphor? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that metaphor had a good time with you too. Thanks. Um, so Kevin Olson. And you want to smoke a cigarette now. Yeah. Why? That's what you do after having a good time. After a good rant? Yeah, a good, we'll call it a good rant. Um, so Kevin Olson says, The world, I believe, is better than it has ever been. It's difficult for many to accept. Mm. Health, socially, getting food and shelter to those who need it, and etc. Mm. And I said, do you personally think that current trajectories being what they are, the world will be a better place to live or a worse place to live in, say, 2120? Mm. Like 100 years from now. Do you, because I mean, that affects how you behave right now. If you think the world is going to you know where and is getting worse and worse, that's going to affect your investment in your behavior in your life right now. If you think the world is getting better, it's going to affect how you involve yourself in projects and your environment because you think you're contributing to it getting better. So that's going to hunker down or buck up. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, So Kevin said, did you make that up? I just made it up. Hunker down or buck up. Yeah. I like it. That's, um, that's fear or love. Fear or love. That's the two choices right. right there. So Kevin says, by 2120, I believe that the world will be far better than today. I think capitalism and Marxism are outdated and will be surpassed by then. Right. I feel optimistic as well. So I, 100 yeah. years from now, backwards was 1920. Yeah. Just for perspective. Because sure. sometimes when we talk about the future, we're like, oh my Lord, it's so far away. I can't imagine it. Like, um, like 1920 was 100 years from now, the other direction. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. Not that long ago. <laughs> Um, so I had, I have a thought. Okay. So I was raised in ultra right wing old Testament apocalyptic Christianity. So the end of the world is a fetish in the world that I grew up in. Right. You want the world to end because that's gets you closer to heaven and you hope it happens in your lifetime. You've been, you know, it's been like been promised for a long time. And I think there's some hope that you are the special people who get to be there when the dirty, dirty nature world uh, ends and we get to go to our clean, bleached, uh, white linen heaven. Where nobody is ever tempted to want to sleep with somebody they're not supposed to sleep with. Right. Thank God I won't have to struggle with that anymore. So, and because 70% of U.S. of U.S. citizens identify as Christian. And there are many other equally conservative religious groups. Um, and that is a that is a thing that's in the Bible. Revelations is a thing that's in the Bible. Right. Whatever your particular church, how much weight they put on it, doesn't matter because it's in the book. It's in the playbook. Um, when our media makes sensational entertainment, 
think about the big sensational entertainment movies. They are disaster films. They are apocalyptic films. A horrible thing is happening and then we get saved. Uh, earthquake on the West Coast. Meteor comes and destroys us. Aliens come and eat our brains out. Whatever, you know, micro, right. mi- microbial thing comes the and wipes out all the humans. Yeah, is that something horrible happens right. and we get saved. And that narrative that things are going to go to hell and, you know, everybody likes to watch a train wreck. So right. we keep creating train wrecks which feeds our cultural perspective that the end is near always. And we want it to end because we're not having a good time. We have credit card debt. And that's kind of what's happening with our culture, my assessment of what's happening with our culture. So it's not real popular to have a big blockbuster film that imagines a, a world where we have solved a number of our problems instead of pushing our problems into the future. Right. Like, I like the space movies where guys are running around on spaceships with guns. Right. <laughs> like projectile guns in space. Why would I we still have, that. why would we still have this? If we're in space, we will not be using projectile weapons. Yeah, you, you might want to also, like, know who you're going into space with a little bit, have some vetting process where you don't need to bring a gun. Yeah. Well, so, they bring a guns for the bad guys out there. It's space terrorists. It's really funny. Space so, terrorists. When I think about 100 years from now, I think hopefully, you know, we've, we're in this weird, uncomfortable spot where within the span of one or two generations, we got psychology and media, mm-hmm. which is just like a propag- you know, like propaganda sweet spot. Mm-hmm. You have a tool that everybody just voluntarily glues themselves to. Mass and information. You, and you have a psychology that shows you how to exploit that attention. Yeah. And maybe we'll get over that to some degree. I would like to think we, you know, we have options now. When I was raised up, when my parents were raised up, they just had ABC, CBS, NBC. And that was really easy to have a zeitgeist, to have a, a, a nation, national identity. You can't do that anymore. All the tribes have split, split, split. Mm-hmm. There's no left and right anymore. We keep talking about the left and right. We keep talking about Republicans and Democrats. The Democrats are not united. The Republicans are not united. Our country's not united, but we keep talking about like we're a thing. Like and we're is. not a thing. We're not a thing anymore. The state has crashed. It has fallen. It doesn't serve us anymore. We know it doesn't serve us anymore. We're so traumatized that we just keep pu- pushing the voting button, mm-hmm. hoping if we push it harder to work this time, it's not going to work. Right. Not on that, the big national or national scale. That system is failing. It's failed. It's it, it's it's a failed state. Yeah. We are a failed state. The state is no longer serving the function that it was designed to do. So it's failed. By the evidence, yeah. voting does not produce the results that the citizens want voting to produce. Therefore, voting is a failed system. It's a failed system. And we just keep pushing the button harder. We have like blood around our fingertips because we keep thinking if we just really vote hard this time, it's going to solve the problem. And be- and while we're doing that, that vote, fear- Vote, with a bigger ulcer. That fear-based action is keeping us from looking at what kind of world we really want to be in. We just keep saying not that one. We don't keep saying this one. Well, and, and it keeps us from envisioning other ways of building our world. Like yes. If, we, if, if the collective consciousness of the citizens of the U.S. decided to be like, to heck with this voting thing, let's just go build our society and let the, the oligarchs die out. Because, like, I saw this statistic that's like, most of the people in Washington, D.C. are over 70. Yeah. Like, just let yeah. the oligarchs die out. We'll start building society 
our own selves in our towns, in our communities, in our states, with our people and our values locally and bubble it out up from there and to heck with this like national thing, like being so heavily focused on thinking that that old system is going to save us and produce a new world is preventing us from finding new ways to build a new world. It seems to be the case. Yeah. Did you want to read more of what Allison said? I'll just, sure. I'll read more. I, like I said, I don't necessarily agree with the tenor of what she's saying, but I love her articulation of her vision. Yeah. Uh, as a writer. Uh, the next phase of Davos's mining program involves deploying nanotech human computer interfaces at the population level to begin to meld us into a single hive mind. What's Davos? Davos is a place. Oh. And it's like, it used to be the Bilderberg group would meet at some secret place and they would they were the oligarchs that decided the fate of the planet. The Bilderberg group, that's the thing that uh, Alec, gives Alex Jones an ulcer. Is altar. that Black Gate or Black... Black Rock? Black Rock. No, that's, they're just, the Black Rock is just the, the cops oh, for cool. the oligarchs. Um, so Bilderberg is what? Bilderberg is basically old money. That decides policy. So Bilderberg Group would like... So Bill Clinton was a guy who was in Arkansas, and then he went to Bilderberg, then he became the president. Mm. You know, like, they invite players in and cast them in roles is the story. Okay. Um, these are... This is where the conspiracies happen. Uh, people in government and corporate and church meet together and decide the fate of the world. That's the story of the Bilderberg group. Right. And it's a secret. You can't have the media there. And it um, makes us think that voting, it makes us think that because we have voting that it like, well, you do, you can vote, you can vote for president. I was like, if voting actually worked for the civilians, we would not be choosing Biden and Kamala. No, they're not the brightest, best and brightest among us. No. <laughs> if we could actually, as civilians, directly vote for yeah, who, but Trump. who, yeah. who no, we wanted. This whole game. Like, the blue team would not have picked those guys. No. So, uh, Davos is just uh, the World Economic Forum, which is, I guess, maybe like a sidecar to the Bilderberg Group. I don't know how they're all connected, but these guys are players. The people who are meeting at Davos are deciding. That's where Greta Thunberg went and said, wake up, dudes. Yeah. We need to stop acting like jerks. Okay. She was at Davos. Oh. So, it is a, it's a less secretive and private uh, and has more media coverage than what to say what the Bilderbergs do. Okay. Anyway, so the next phase of Davos's mining program involves deploying deploying nanotech human computer interfaces at the population level to begin to meld us into a single hive mind. This technology, which she feels is bad. Right. I, I'm not a big fan of that idea either. But um, this technology will be packaged as cutting-edge therapeutics meant to keep us safe and healthy. Hmm. Liability waivers will be put in place to ensure that companies developing such abominations in coordination with DARPA's mad scientists are never held responsible for the harm they cause. I anticipate personalized medicine and preventative care in the form of a series of mnra vaccines will be mandated to harness humanity to harness humanity to bill gates software of life and then she has um bill and melinda bill and melinda gates excerpts screenshots from his website uh, talking about uh, the software of life how they're just going to take some dna some mrna and deal with some proteins and shape mm -hmm. us into decent humans. Yeah. 
that wear masks when we're told to. So, well, you're mixing a few different stories there. Very much. You're so. mixing stories. Yeah, I'm riffing. Because there is there is an article that we just found recently where somebody was like, "We should just give people a niceness pill." So oh, that, that story. So that they, so that they, a psychoactive pill that makes people have like decency. Do you have that story? So that they will wear a mask. Do you know where that story is? I'll find it. Yeah, we should. Yeah, we should wade into that. Uh, Kevin says, Chomsky says, Noam Chomsky, who I have not really ever listened to Noam Chomsky. I just know that he's a big guy out there. He's one of the big constellations. Very much the public intellectual. So Noam Chomsky says that Biden is the furthest left candidate ever on climate policies. The furthest left candidate ever regarding climate. Well, and And this is what Kevin says that was surprising for him to hear. (laughs) And this is what Allison will say. See what I mean? Because she's saying that this new Green Deal is actually a ruse by the World Economic Forum to, you know, take over the planet. Right. Well, so I think you'll find story. what you expect yeah. to find. Yes. You're right. going to find what you expect to find. Right. Yep. So, uh, Allison, she's going, she's going down this, this path. So she has uh, lots of excerpts from Bill Gates' thing. Uh, and then she says, the Harvard Business Review asserts this global campaign must be rolled out equitably. Satellites are poised to track black and brown bodies from space and compel the full vaccination coverage needed to carry out these malevolent intentions. Jesus. Look up Microsoft's planetary computer. The oligarchs speak of a world where no one is left behind. Everyone tagged and tracked into the Internet of Humans master database, Mm -hmm. domesticated livestock with no autonomy, whose life force Life force is sucked dry to satisfy the unrelenting greed of predator energy. See, 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 yes, scary. <laughs> like, do not want. But also, it's already happened. Yeah, that's like it's already happened. I like Our data is everywhere. It. Our data is constantly being yeah. mined. It has already happened. People in power already have more information about us than we have about us. And they are already using it to sell us things and yeah. make us do stuff and make us make choices. Well, and predict the future. Like, it's already happened. They're using our data to predict the future. They're using um, all this uh, the, data. The, the supercomputer AI yeah. is already working. Figuring out. So we had a pandemic that was not that serious. Um as far as the initial idea of it, the way it was sold to us, mm-hmm. we're finding out it's really a strong flu season is what happened. Our behaviors around this p- pandemic have been very valuable in terms of seeing how people deal with a lockdown, how people deal with compliance. Will these people comply or will they not comply? What does it take to get them to comply? So our story, so and that story was playing out in every country. Mm-hmm. So you had the people in England and the way they complied or didn't comply about certain issues, the people in America, how they complied. So I, it seems like if I was an artificial intelligence in uh, uh, as a tool for the Great Reset, you figure out how to do it better next time. And by better, we don't mean make less death. No. By better, we mean sell more things. Yeah. So she, she, she sort of um, goes there and she says, globalists have long targeted vulnerable populations as social impact fuel. This is corporate predation branded as paternalistic care. 
Within the technologic system, local compliance will be demanded, approved behavior becomes currency, tokenized on a blockchain and monitored by sensors and artificial intelligence. They are training us for a future where we compete with one another to see who is the best behaved, the most docile. Surviving will mean conforming to the strident terms of psychopathic financial agreements. To obtain the data needed to verify claims embedded in twisted pay-for-success deals, our mother, the Earth, must be remade as a geofenced digital prison using 5G and satellite constellations. All of your data will be added to your permanent record to evaluate your value as human capital for investor portfolios. The billionaires envision a future where freedom is a privilege limited to themselves, their functionaries, and the robots they control. Be assured, artificial intelligence is already keeping tabs and social credit scoring is well underway. So that's her vision. That's the world that she has created from the information that she has gleaned from the World Economic Forum's plans. Yeah. I think technically she's right. I think all of that stuff is already happening. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that being mad about it is going to get me anywhere. Yeah, what do you do about it? I mean, so I, like, I see people. I get it. It's scary. Sharing this stuff around, and they're like, "We have to stop them." And I'm like, "Well, how, wh- tell me about that. How? Tell me how you stop that." Like, like <laughs> every time one of those viral posts goes around on Facebook, where people are saying, "I, by sharing this post, do not give <laughs> Facebook permission to use my photos yeah. or my likeness or my words." I'm oh, just like, it guys, still goes around. You're, that is a piece of the pie of your personal energy stores that you could not be wasting because you sharing that does not invalidate the user license agreement you clicked except to when you got a Facebook account. Mm. You have a Facebook account. The only way to say Facebook can't use your stuff anymore, as far as we know, if they keep their agreements, is to not have a Facebook account. So I wanted to uh, interview this Allison lady. Stop being afraid of things you can't change. I wanted to interview her, and I asked if she would, and she said yes. And then, like, the next week, some dude drove up from Denver to wherever she is and did, like, a five-hour interview with her. Oh, that's and awesome. there's one-hour excerpts on her page so you can go see all the stuff. And she does an hour devoted solely to the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial mm-hmm. Revolution, which I have not watched yet. But I wanted to interview her, but I'm glad that this other guy did it. So that interview is done. I want to get meta on the interview. I would like to actually learn more about her vision because mm-hmm. I, I like her world uh what do you call that world world building world building um just as somebody who's got some skills mm-hmm. whether i agree with the trajectory or or her her world her, view her, her world view of her world i appreciate her world building mm-hmm. so i would like to interview her maybe to i want to hear the alternative so you don't like the world economic forum and the fourth industrial revolution and the great set what do you propose happens? What should we do instead? Yeah. I think I would like to hear that yeah, version. I, 
I think, um, and I, I'm not accusing Allison of this because I no, don't know her at all, but either. there are many, many, many public intellectuals who just make money and fame off of complaining about stuff. Like, like, like we just talk oh, yeah, about yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. we don't like. Like I, 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 I know we like Jimmy Dore in general, yeah. but he's famous for talking about stuff we don't like. He, he's not there doing long live streams of how we could do stuff differently. He evaluates videos yeah, of politicians yeah. <laughs> being stupid for two hours. Right. I like Jimmy Dore because I like a good rant. Yeah. And like Jimmy. And so do a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy Dore has found a, a wonderful audience of dissatisfied progressives. Who just really like hearing somebody else being mad. Who are not afraid to see their own uh, political party taken to task. Yeah. Right. That's really what he does is he's like the Democratic Party is the best thing we got, even though they're a bunch of jerks. So we need to take them to task. So we at least have some kind of tool for democracy. Let's try to shore up this right. ship because this ship is at least better than the other ship. When so many people were poo pooing you for saying, you know, Hillary Clinton lost that election. We like Trump did. Trump didn't win it. Mm -hmm. Hillary lost it. And here is the playbook for how she did it. Yeah. And how we allowed it to happen as Democrats. Yes. Right. That out the outrage that that sparked every time you tried to do an autopsy of the last election. You must hate women. Is why we have this election. Yep. We had four years for the party to take a look at what happened and, and for change the civilians. course and do something. Yep. And there was there because people were protecting the orthodoxy of the party, the orthodoxy of the of the name. And and the perpetuating the fear of the opposite, mm -hmm. we're back in a worse position than we were this time before the 2016 election. Except, uh, so many of my loved ones are way more traumatized. Everybody's way more traumatized. And yeah, like you said, pushing yeah. the vote button until their fingers bleed. Yeah, yeah. You only get to push it once, folks. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much of an ulcer you have when right. the day comes that you push the button. You only get to push it once. And does it actually matter? Right. It seems that's the case. So I think we should be. Um, you know, a long time ago, back when I was a youngin, back in my thirties, <laughs> uh, <laughs> somebody broke down the left and right for me in a way that I thought was really useful, and I've always, I've always dwelled on it, and it was. Uh, the right, the job of the right is to get people to hearken back to a better time that we're going to reclaim. We're mm. going to get back to the good old days, you know? That's the ideal version of what the right is supposed yeah, to be doing. Right. The left has the much more difficult job. And if they're doing their job, their job is to get people to imagine something that has not yet occurred. A new way of doing things. Which is a much more difficult task. The other people are hearkening back to Nostalgia. an ideal. Yeah. They may not have even been in that better time, but they're sold the romance of that time. And that's an image you can see. Um, so the left's job, in the old political terms, was to get people to see something better. And unfortunately... They've abdicated as a, like the Democrats as a party, mm. have abdicated the role of getting people to imagine a better place and have just said, we're not that guy. That's just, really been 30 years of 30 years of just DNC not Republicans. Strategy. We're just not that guy. So that's 30 years of DNC strategy got us to Donald Trump. Only so 30? At least 30. I think it's since like the late 70s. Well... The neoliberal movement, which came with Clinton, was where they decided they, if they couldn't beat him, join him. Mm -hmm. And they got tough on crime, tough on crime. 
Right. Which was the bird, the the bird whistler, the whatever, the the dog whistling to uh, conservatives and racists. So the Democrats were like, uh, it's not working. Let's scoop up some conservatives of our own. Yeah, well, fear sells. Yeah. And if we talk about terrible, terrible crime in your children, we will win votes. And they use that very effectively. And they, it was the neoliberal agenda from the political, quote unquote, left in America that gave us the prison industrial complex to a large degree. Kevin Nolson says Luddites versus technophiles. Yeah. What's a mm-hmm. Luddite? A Luddite are people who are opposed to technology. Ah. Technophiles. Refuse to engage in that kind I of see. thing. Like Tulsa is a Luddite. He refuses to... Tulsa, our dog, does not like Skyping anybody. No, he doesn't does want to talk to you. Does not want to see your face on the phone. Refuses to acknowledge it, actually. Yes, we'll just stand there and look awkwardly off into the distance. Yeah, and pretend that that's not happening. Please don't try to talk to me over the phone. <laughs> that, our dog is a Luddite. <laughs> He's like, you want to visit with me? Come see me in person. Yeah, in person. <laughs> I don't do that, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. So why are we here? What are you talking about? You and me, why are we doing this? Why are we having these conversations? I like to pop pimples. Okay. So the idea of, I feel like it's important to, like, so today's topic, like, me, the me of five years ago, would totally be on Allison Hover, whatever her last name is. McDowell. Hover McDowell's um, camp. Really? I would totally just be eating everything she's saying. Yeah. Everything's horrible. Because I come because of the the apocalyptic training that I had. I feel now differently because uh, five as, years ago you were already in Butte five years ago. I know, but I I mean, being an outsider is its own thrill and identity. Mm. Thinking that you know this is why QAnon is popular. You know, thinking that you have the inside track, that you have the rarefied information, unpopular opinion, the unpopular opinion. Uh, um, Gives you some kind of cachet that you some there's some elitism to that. If you can't have elitism through money and power, you can have elitism through secret knowledge. Right. So, I would have been more open to her perspective of just a few years ago. But now, as we watch, like I can't get super frothy about Donald Trump because he. This is a pimple that's been coming a long, long time. People act like the pimple just appeared. No, yeah. this is one of those ugly pimples that you could feel long before it you saw. It was really hurting in your jaw. And you can't. For you, like you know weeks. it's coming out. You can't stick. You can't. Yeah. You know it's coming out, this, and you can't even pop head. it because you have to wait for it to come and wait for it to pop. Yep. And Trump is the whitehead on like you know decades old pimple. Yeah. And it came because of the abdication of the responsibility of the left, and it came because of the cynicism of the right. Uh, in the way that they manipulate their base. We can't get back to the good old days. Yeah. So that's unfortunate. And and so for me, it's not surprising. I mean, I was surprised that Trump won because I was convinced that the corporate state had a lockdown on the system. Mm. I was not happy that Trump won. I was surprised uh, Well, Hillary that was he also won. surprised that Trump yeah, everybody, won because she yeah. was pretty sure she had a lockdown on the system corporately. Yes, she, she thought she had it in the bag. And when it didn't happen... I think that was really a tremendous moment. And to me, it was like, this is where the pimple might be able to pop. Trump is so terrible as just a genuine, as a, I, I, I see Trump as a terrible human being. I don't ever imagining wanting to spend time with him because I don't see him as having much integrity mm-hmm. in the way that he deals. He's a, he's a, he's a flim flam man. He's a showman. He's a hype man and a flim flam man. And maybe behind the scenes, there's something there, but I'd, I haven't seen anything from him that makes me like have any kind of so 
a news piece. No appeal for me. Is um, that Trump's little brother just died last night. Yeah. Did you see that? I heard that everybody's wondering if it's COVID. Uh, I think something strange has happened in the last four years with Trump and how much people hate him where humans have stopped being able to acknowledge certain people's humanity. Oh, yeah. Like, I try not US, to speak Ill U.S. Of the dead. civilians have just used their hatred of Trump or their hatred of the left to just completely scrub an ability out of their minds that we used to have. Yeah. Where you could be yelling at somebody at the bar over their politics, but still go to their ma's funeral. And like, yeah, I know that my family and many of my conservative friends, over half the people that I know are conservatives and many of them are going to be saying a prayer for the president right. and how sad he is that his brother died and they're going to have a sad day. Right. Because they feel the humanity of their president. They don't see, they're not scouring the internet for all the horrible things that he's they're saying. They're looking through a different lens. They're seeing completely yeah. a completely different perspective of Trump. Many of them are not on social media as much as liberals are. Yeah. And so they're not seeing every single tweet that he follows. Trump is followed by more Democrats than Republicans. Yeah. And when I turned on Twitter today and saw that uh, his brother died and he was saying... Uh, he's, he was, he wasn't only a great man. He was my best friend. Who said that? Trump did. Oh, okay. You know, like these are people. Yeah. And when we allow ourselves to just paint someone in a flat color, just flat red color. Yeah. It makes that function possible in our minds about anybody else. If you yeah. just say Trump yeah. is just bad and I don't have to care and he's not a human and he's the worst thing ever and it doesn't matter, you now have the ability to do that about anybody that you meet. Mm -hmm. You have created an ability in yourself to reject someone else's humanity. To dehumanize. It's not just going to be Trump. Yeah. yeah. You're going to find yourself doing that to lots of other people. What happened to hate the game, not the player? <laughs> hate the sin, love the sinner? Yeah, hate the game. Not the player. That's a hate the game, love the player. Hate the game, not the player. So like Trump is only able to be the spectacle that he is because the the game has crashed. Mm -hmm. The game is so messed up because of the citizens of this country's inability to rein in corruption. We let it get away from us, and Trump appeared. And so he yeah. is just a player in a game. Yeah. And we made the game so that Trump could play that role. And people think that he is some sort of like self-acting evil dude that, that yeah, just sprung that on the scene and took, over, took yeah. over a good system with his awfulness. Gives him a lot of credit. Kevin says, it uh, started in the 1960s when the Republican Party tried to shore up its base by appealing to the religious right. Yeah. Similar to Rome appealing to the conservative religious base in the first century. Accurate. Very interesting. Yeah. Parallel. Yep. Oy, 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 you look oy, at the 1950s, early 1960s Republican platforms, and you would think you were looking at a 1990s Democrat, Democrat platform. Mm-hmm. 
those names don't mean much anymore. We've been really good at branding people for, uh, for loyalty to their party. Team red, team blue. Yeah, people are really good. Uh, the, the blue no matter who, which I think sometime I'd like to talk about the importance of irony and what our irony deficiencies are doing to us. Okay. I think that's for a future show, though. Yeah. Because we use the, I see the blue folks saying vote blue no matter who. And that is exactly not what the democratic experiment was supposed to be about. Ironically, they're using a fascist tactic. Mm-hmm. Blue no matter who is a fascist trope. That means you will support the party, not the ideas or not the person. And to me, that's really dangerous. That means whoever the party picks, you have to support you them. You have to support which them. has given up your agency yeah. and your ability to have a choice. And I feel very confident in that assessment. I think that's a fascist trope. Now, to say that to somebody who has used that phrase comes across as some insult to them to reveal, to say... Because seems most people to me, find fascists insulting. The <laughs> yeah. meaning of that... Blue no matter who. The mechanism of that statement. The mechanism of that statement is the opposite of what the democratic process is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. The and democratic, to, yeah, you're right. Yeah. The democratic process is literally supposed to be every citizen gets a vote. And to your try to find voice, somebody who represents them. Your voice should be heard. And yeah. Blue no matter who says, it you doesn't matter what your voice is, just vote for the team. I think that's one of those simple things that I tried to bring out back when I was doing political um, arguments on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's a pretty solid hook. It seems pretty clear. I want to throw that out there. Linguistically, and it was just like from Westworld, where it's like showing the picture to the robot with like, "I that doesn't look like anything to me." Yeah, just cannot see it. Cannot see that information. That is the thing that we talk about in the show all the time. That is where the cognitive dissonance has hit. Mm-hmm. And you double down, or you change your perspective. And I didn't see anybody who, were, who was using blue no matter who or just wear a mask, moron, to bring that to their attention and to say, this mechanism is not going to accomplish the thing that you want. Right. If you want people to wear a mask, shaming them into it is not that's going not to be the best. Work. That's not going to be the best route mm-hmm. to get people to comply with something. That, if, if this is a useful thing. And you want people to comply with it, or even if it's not useful and you want people to comply with it, (laughs) trying to shame them into it is a losing strategy. Well, I think we also know in our guts that the world is more complex than one-size-fits-all answers ever. Ever. And I would challenge people to bring up any one-size-fits-all experience that humans have had. Mm. Anyone. Tell it. I'm really curious. Mm. Because I bet you... Holy cow. Holy cow. Yeah, it's like 10 minutes to the end of the show already. Yeah. I thought we were going to have to run out and stop the show at 5.30 because I felt like we kind of cinched up everything we wanted to talk about. I think we covered some ground today. Can I do my two little bits? Do your two little bits. So normally uh, we, for the past six months, we've been doing a coronavirus bit and a Black Lives Matter bit. Oh. So uh, our little coronavirus bit for this week is um, the morality pill. Here's an article for you. The morality pill. Yeah, do it. The morality this pill. Is, I was so excited. This is when from I found this. theconversation.com. Academic rigor, journalistic flair. Okay, let's see what they got. This is by a bunch of people with names that I can't pronounce. Oh right. Oh no. Here we go. The author. The author is Parker 
Crutchfield, Associate Professor of Medical Ethics, Humanities, and Law, Western Michigan University. Medical Ethics. Medical Ethics. That's very important. Parker Crutchfield says, this is his headline, Morality <laughs> Pills may be the U.S.'s best shot at ending the coronavirus pandemic, according to one ethicist himself. <laughs> And his subtitle is a psychoactive substance to make you act in everyone's best interest? Question mark. COVID-19 is a collective risk. It threatens everyone and we all must cooperate to lower the chance that the coronavirus harms any one individual. Among other things, that means keeping safe social distances and wearing masks. But many people choose not to do these things, making spread of infection more likely. So already we know the science that Parker Crutchfield thinks is the only true science about viruses. It's a very particular perspective on this situation when someone chooses to not follow public health guidelines around the coronavirus they're defecting from the public good so this is the sort of dangerous stuff that dark and i are talking about Mm. when we start labeling someone who doesn't wear a mask as someone who hates their neighbors yeah that's how someone gets murdered yeah that's the slippery slope to murder very dangerous it's the moral equivalent of the tragedy of the commons If everybody is sharing the same pasture for their individual flocks, some people are going to graze their animals longer or let them eat more than their fair share, ruining the commons in the process. Selfish and self-defeating behavior undermines the pursuit of something from which everyone can benefit. Democratically enacted enforceable rules, and I'm just going to say the mask mandates were not democratically enacted, guys. No, they were not. (laughs) <laughs> not democratically enacted. Not well sold either. But in his in his worldview, democratically enacted enforceable rules, such as mandating things like mask wearing and social distance, might work if defectors could be coerced into adhering to them. My research in bioethics focuses on questions like how to induce those who are non-cooperative to get on board with what's do with doing what's best for the common good. To me, it seems the problem of coronavirus defectors could be solved by moral enhancement. Like receiving a vaccine to beef up your immune system, people could take a substance to boost their cooperative, pro-social behavior. So, if you think that social distancing and mask wearing is how we keep people from dying, then you probably think it would be a good idea to just give everybody in the U.S. a pill that would make them give a damn about their fellow citizens. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. That scares me. That seems not not well thought out. It scares me not only because it's important to look at all of the science surrounding SARS-CoV-2 and how it behaves, which we have amalgamated over the past six months, but it also scares me because it's not really American to just be like, (laughs) everybody coerce people medically, psychoactively to just be nice to each other. That's assuming we know what should be done. Yes, this article is assuming that we all know, hands down, what should be done to quote unquote stop the virus, which you can't stop, viruses are gonna virus. Um, hate is going to hate. Virus yeah. is going to virus. Yeah. Um, but it's, he's assuming anyway, that was, that was my intense COVID bit is that someone out there on a peer reviewed journal is suggesting that we medically induce people Compliance. to care about each other more. And that they're assuming that if people care about each other more, then they will wear masks. See, that's just bad writing. That's why I like, uh, Alistair, Al- Allison. That's why I like her. She's put more thought mm-hmm. into the world that she's building. This guy, he's, that is bad writing. He's just basing it off of what he's been bad told. Bad world building. 
that's like completely like cut off from human mm -hmm. behavior. I think that guy's, uh, yeah, I wouldn't read much more of his stuff because it's like watching a bad movie where yeah. you can't enjoy the movie because you're like, that wouldn't have happened that way. That was, they, they forgot continuity. He was wearing a tie. Now he's not wearing a tie. Oh, I hate like, that. Like his coffee cup was almost empty. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's him. That's his writing. He doesn't mm. care about continuity. He doesn't, he's not, he's bad. He's a bad writer. And so for uh, our Black Lives Matter bit, before yeah. we hand things over to Dan and Patty for the Sunday Smackdown yeah. from 6 to 8 p.m., I've been following the story of Cannon, who is a five-year-old white boy who was murdered in his front yard from a gunshot wound from a black neighbor. Okay. His next-door neighbor shot him with a gun. And then the next-door neighbor was imprisoned and charged and is in jail for, the like, I don't know, the rest of his life. But, uh, like, the He hasn't been sentenced yet. So. Yeah, he's been sentenced. Oh, he has? Yeah. Okay. It, it just happened. He's already been sentenced. He's done. It's wow. case closed. But the outrage online is, why don't we have national protests for Cannon? Hashtag say his name. He was murdered. Why do we have all of this stuff about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all these other people, but not for this poor little five-year-old boy? That already makes me exhausted. Why? It just makes me exhausted because the gap... Like that, that, the people who are trying to compare the murder of a little white boy to systemic racism that popped like I a see. Pimple. You feel like it's exhausting because of all the information that you would need to share with somebody in order, walk it way back. in order for them to understand why it's not the same thing. Do they want to know is the question. Yeah. I feel like if people really wanted to know why there, there's no outrage over that kid's death, or I should say why there is outrage over black people's death. But not oh, no outrage yeah. over... They're like, it's the, not getting yeah, right. any media coverage as they share news articles about the kid so getting killed. It just sounds like a guilty white conscience to me, and it makes me really tired because if I thought the intent was to understand the situation, yes, I would have weighed in. That is a story that people are sharing and having feelings about. And when people try to bring up, well, because... Uh, George Floyd's killers didn't be weren't brought to justice the same way. Then you could be like, well, but they are in prison. Actually, they're yeah. actually in prison. And so the problem is, is it's a much more complex issue than can be encompassed in a single meme. And that's why we do this every week. We'll come back. Maybe we'll see how that evolves the next week, and we'll come back next week and talk about it. Stay tuned, folks. You can join the post orthodoxy conversation by catching one of our live streams on Facebook, Twitch, or YouTube. If you'd like to connect with us online, we can be found on Instagram at post orthodoxy, on Twitter and Facebook as ourselves, and on Twitch as the Seviers. Our work on the post orthodoxy conversations is supported by listeners like you through our Patreon, where patrons of the show have access to perks and exclusive content. That's patreon.com slash post orthodoxy. Post Orthodoxy began as a live radio broadcast on KBMF 102.5 FM, America's Most Radio. Find other quality radio shows by the 70-plus volunteer DJs on the station archive at butteamericaradio.org slash shows. Or you can stream live 24-7 from anywhere on the planet at butteamericaradio.org slash stream. Our post-Orthodoxy theme music was composed by Frank Pascal, and a special thanks goes to our voice actors, Amelia, Colin, Zbo, Rosie, Gabo, Vicky, Mokai, and Tony. Thanks for playing. <laughs> What's outside your reality bubble? <laughs>